Hello and welcome to the Indian American Experience podcast. I'm your host, Bindia Parikh. Indian Americans are a group that defies being painted in one stroke, be it in political or ideological leanings, definition of identity, or perception of their place in society. So join me in listening to the journeys and experiences of a diverse group of Indian Americans or Desis through lighthearted, casual conversations and see if we can find common threads, maybe shed some myths and hear some interesting stories. Let's get started. My guest today is Joe Pichimuthu. Joe came to the U.S. as an 18-year-old in the mid-1980s on a full scholarship to study computer science and economics, after which he completed a graduate degree in finance and international business. Joe has worked for over 20 years at leading pharmaceutical and biotech companies focused on the commercialization and launch of novel cancer drugs. In his free time, Joe enjoys reading, hiking, racket sports, and golf. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Bendia. Pleasure to be here. Same here. It's good to have you. That's an impressive bio, and I can't wait to ask you more about your experience launching cancer drugs. But let's start with your hobbies. Have you read anything good lately? Yeah, I think the last book I read, and I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't read anything in the last like, month or so, but the last book I read was one called Early Indians by Tony Joseph. It's, a, okay. it's actually a very interesting book. It's about the history of how successive waves of essentially groups came into India and goes all the way to prehistoric times, even before Indus Valley civilization. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. Uses, uh, the author uses genetic data as well as geological information, as well as language and all kinds of other aspects to really map out how India evolved to what it is today. Essentially a diverse uh, mix of a lot of different groups of people. So yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Oh, that does sound fascinating. That's definitely a book I want to read. Yeah, and I believe it's available on Amazon. Okay. Back, so it should be an easy one to pick up. I would love to read it. I have so many questions about, yes, we are diverse, but why are we diverse? And right. what the influences were and how you even define Adivasis in India. And Right, right. It, yeah. So if you're intrigued by those, yeah, I would highly recommend this because the author does take a pretty solid scientific view of how gene data as well as other aspects explain some of the current Indian ethnic groups, or if you want to call them, right, the current Indians, right, where, where all these Indians originated, they came from different places, the language differences, all that kind of good stuff. That definitely is a must read. I'm even going to put it down in the show notes so people can access <laughs> the book. Very much on the topic of what, what we're trying to casually get at. So, okay, let's now go into your personal journey. Share with us what your personal journey has been like, starting with why you decided to come to the U.S. You know, this is uh, kind of going back in time, right? And uh, yeah. I mean, I grew up, actually, I'm Tamil. I grew up actually in Bihar, in a small coal mining town. My dad was a mining engineer. I would say very positive, great memories of my childhood growing up there. You know, it was a surprisingly cosmopolitan little, they used to call it officer's colony where my dad worked for a large company, uh, Tata Steel. So it almost was like this mixture of all kinds of different states of India represented in our colony. So I grew up in a very multi-language, multi-ethnic neighborhood. So those people mm -hmm. who were obviously those Biharis, Bengalis, Punjabis, I mean, you can pick any state those are represented. 
So right from my early childhood, it was actually kind of a nice introduction to the you know diversity of India. I mean, the school was actually quite good, but after say about eighth grade, I think uh, I made uh, well, my parents made the decision that being in Bangalore would be better for my education. And then my grandfather lived there, so I actually moved to Bangalore. He was quite old, so I couldn't live with him, but I stayed in the boarding school in Bangalore. And that was actually kind of my, I would say kind of my transition to the U.S. Really, Bangalore was a lot more connected to the Western world, right? So obviously Bihar was a you know, traditional small town in India versus Bangalore. With a couple of kids who took the SATs before me, decided to do the same, got a scholarship to a university in the Boston area and was also very uh, fortunate or, you know, I met my future wife there. So yeah, a lot of things happened. Destiny, right? It's a yeah. Hindi movie, it would be probably called Destiny. But uh, yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of sequence of things that happened in my early childhood. But I would say a lot of it was, I have very positive memories growing up. My grandfather was a big influence, obviously. He was a noted scientist in India. He was actually a professor in the university in Bangalore. He actually published several books. Uh, he was considered one of the authorities in geology in his oh, time. Yeah? Yeah, so kind of learned a lot of, you know, I would say a lot of influences from him, along with my dad, who was also a very respected engineer who uh, held in his profession. So it's a lot of science and uh, technology type backgrounds. I think that's kind of, uh, that's my childhood influence. Yeah, just a combination of your granddad and your dad being deeply entrenched in the scientific field. Right. And then around you, people applying to come to the U.S. that I'm sure put together, it made it easy, I guess, for you to think about it. And then the right. scholarship. Exactly. Yeah. And I think my grandfather also may have had a, more than a passing role in that too, because he, ah, for his good. generation, he came to the U.K. to do his advanced studies. And he used to tell us mm -hmm. stories about those times he had to take a ship and how long it took, maybe weeks, months, whatever. And, you know, as a kid yeah. growing up, it was pretty fascinating to hear stories about how he was in, in Scotland for a while and places I'd never actually seen an Indian in Scotland because mm. those days I think most Indians went to London and stuff. So Right. Uh, so, how yeah, did he end up going to Scotland? So I believe at that time there were a few centers of excellence in the world and I think the, I believe the University of Edinburgh was one of the top places. So he went there yeah. for his advanced studies in geology yeah, and he got inducted into the Fellow of the Royal Society, which was you know considered a big deal for for someone coming from India that era. So, but of course he came back and then you know, then stayed in India after that. But I did get a lot of the stories of being in a foreign country, which I always thought of cool. He used to tell us how travels Europe. He actually even traveled to U.S. and so it was always interesting hearing the stories that may have played a part in my coming to U.S. at that age. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine all those influences. So even though you had all this exposure. Still having spent your first 18 years in India, do you recall having to consciously do a lot or a little to acculturate to America when you came here? You know, look, I mean, when you grow up in India, you watch, there were movies at that time. So you assume that life in the U.S. is like the movies, which obviously it's not, right? So, <laughs> yeah, and I think, think you know everything about a country, but you don't. And then, yeah, simple things like I think I still remember we, a few of us were all foreign students. So we used to struggle with very basic things like, you know, people would say, hi, how are you? And you try mm -hmm. to answer that, how are you part? And people are just walking by, right? It's, <laughs> it's really more of a greeting, which I think for, for most of us foreign students, it was very confusing initially because, you know, in India, if someone says, how are you? You usually stop and try to you talk proceed to, to tell them <laughs> yeah so you know simple things like that yeah. simple things like even the english that we used in india was very right. different we thought we spoke english but the u.s 
American English is very different. So very true. people would yes. often not understand what we're saying, right? So things like that. So there was this word called, I think we use it, we used to use it in India anyway. I don't know if they use it called prepon, right? When you do something yeah. and you want to do it earlier, so let's prepon it. But that word actually does not exist in English, right? Maybe yeah. not in American English. Yeah. So use words like that. People are like, what are you talking about? What is a prepon? That's like, Postpone's fine, but you cannot prepone something. So, but there's a whole bunch of those words, right? Yeah. So you were in the Boston area when you first came here. Yes, exactly. When I first came here, it was the Charlotte area. And because there was a little less exposure, perhaps, to Indians at that time. So it was challenging for me to quickly try to adjust how I say things. Because at the workplace, I would say a few things. And even my pronunciation, you know, I became very aware of that. And then I right. tried very hard to slowly, you know, learn and not only just the words, but also how I pronounce them. Right, Same Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know which area you came, but in the 80s, and I came as a young, you know, 18-year-old. So most of my peers, their knowledge of India was, hey, you know, it's a country where there are cows wandering around and cows can stop yeah. traffic. And I think mm-hmm. that was the time in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was big. So that was one of the questions I still remember the guys, you know, my roommate, I think, asked me, hey, so how does monkey brain really taste? I mean, do you guys eat that all the time or is that like a special occasion? I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, but there's genuinely, you know, these are not like questions to, you know, kind of put us down. They assume that Indians eat it was monkey brains and that's like a normal thing to do. So yeah, there were all these mid 80s, like yeah. stereotypes of India. India was actually not well known at all. I would have to, if I said Bangalore, they'd be like, never heard of it. I've heard of Bombay or Delhi, but that's about it, you know. So yeah, Bangalore so, wasn't on the map. Oh, then. yeah, in the yeah. mid '80s, no one even simple things like that. Eh? But I think generally it was a, you know, the first year was tricky. You know, we all obviously had a pretty good circle of foreign students, and and actually our, our group also included a kid from Montana because he couldn't relate to anyone in Boston either. So Interesting. We had this, yeah, so we had this table full, full, you know, different countries, and then this kid from Montana who didn't quite fit into the rest of the. American peers, so it was kind of hilarious. Yeah. And then uh, my sophomore year, I met this, uh, I would say, very uh, talkative, outgoing, energetic, nice girl. And, you know, she kind of decided to mentor me on the American ways. And I think you may know her. I mean, I eventually got together with her and you know, we've uh, been together for about 30 plus years and counting. Okay, so yeah, that's so, Lena, who yes, grew up so, here. Um, yeah, so she was obviously very Americanized and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, she kind of give useful tips for us to, you know, get uh, used to the American culture. So that was helpful I think, for, for many of us. Oh, that's a good story. And yeah, so you decided she's a keeper. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I, I still get a lot of useful tips from how to get used to American life and life in general. So yeah, that okay. pattern still holds today. <laughs> well, that's that's good. Keep listening to her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So now, just switching gears a bit, you've spent about two decades of your pharmaceutical career working in the field of cancer drugs. So tell us a bit about that. What made you stay in the same sector for so long? First, let's let's ask you that. Sure, absolutely. My career, actually in the pharma industry, started after business school. I was uh, originally a finance major. I joined one of the large companies based in Central Jersey. Worked on really a broad range of drugs, you know, including painkillers and uh, women's health and things like that. And, you know, I was I was happy. I mean, I, I don't want to say that it was not uh, something I needed to change up, but, you know, I was still kind of searching at that time. I, I wasn't sure if this is what I'd do for the rest of my life. But there was a project I worked on where 
we had to acquire an oncology company, oncology cancer drug company, right? So I got to actually work with some of our folks who were working in the field of cancer, you know, not just commercial finance folks, but also the folks who do some of the medical research and the trials. And I noticed immediately a difference. I think when I compare, say, between therapeutic areas, cancer versus other indications, this was a very highly passionate, motivated group of individuals who believed they were doing something special. And mm. I could sense the excitement. So I was very, again, you know, fortunate to have a mentor who I expressed my interest in moving into that area, supported my goals, got into that field. It's actually been over 20 years and I can't remember exactly when I made that move. And I've been really kind of, I would say, hooked in that space. You know, when I joined the whole field of cancer drugs and development, it was all we had at that time was chemotherapy. I mean, mm. this was back in the maybe late 90s. 2000 time frame. And it was just the start of the whole targeted therapy that now we have really begun to see changing the face of cancer. And, you know, it, it was just highly rewarding for me, both, you know, just from a, getting up in the morning and saying, okay, I'm doing something that's actually useful from yeah. a patient perspective. And, you know, we used to often, you know, we obviously got, you know, launching drugs is a rare thing because there's a very high rate of failure, right? There's roughly about 90 to 95% of all drugs in early clinical development fail. So, oh, really? so Only yeah, so 90%. yes. So, I mean, after I mean, I would say 20 plus years of working, I've worked on literally dozens and dozens of drugs. I've mm. launched actually only two, right? Really? That eventually got to a launch where, as a commercialization person, I get to see it actually getting at the market. So, the success rate of drugs is, especially in cancer, is extremely low. As so, a consumer, should that be a reassuring thing for me? I'm guessing that if it's such a rigorous process then as a consumer that's something that we should be reassured by i would say reassured because you know and this is where i know there's been harsh things said about the fda by some of the presidential candidates but to get a drug through the fda is actually immensely challenging you have to do very rigorous randomized controlled trials often involving thousands of patients i mean it's basically not done for most uh, let's call it supplements and vitamins you know people take those all the time without any data so, I mean, that actually accounts for most of the failures because it's very hard to show in a randomized clinical trial that you're better than the other alternative that's being mm -hmm. tested against. Right? So, so to me, it's actually reassuring in a strange way, but obviously the scientific process needs to evolve, and I think it is improving. Uh, in fact, one of the most exciting things is that AI is actually going to be used to design drugs. There's already been some companies using to generate drugs, so which which could actually speed up the process. I think the hardest part was creating new molecules to test in these types of trials. So the hope now is that with the AI, there'll be a massive increase in productivity in the front end when you get new chemical or molecules to be tested against in these types of trials. And the future is getting better. I mean, even in the 20 years, I've seen a huge improvement, right? I think when I started, if you had, uh, say, melanoma or lung cancer or any of these uh, solid tumors, Survival is less than 12 months. Now, it's some of these cancers, survival's increased to over five years, maybe even seven, 10 years. I mean, melanoma at this point, I mean, you could easily survive for 10 years. So a lot of, lot of progress there. And, and blood cancer is another field where I currently work in. It's, some of them are getting cured right now, which is amazing. People actually will not die of cancer, they'll die of some other disease like heart attacks or something, which is an amazing transition over the 20 years. So. And what does the future hold in terms of more cancer research and treatment? Oh, I think there's still a lot of investment, right? The, between academic institutions, which do a lot of good work, right? a lot of these things are actually coming out of academia as well. 
and also a lot of biotech and big pharmaceutical companies are still focused on it. So I think the progress will continue for the next five to seven years. And it's a cliche, but uh, I think the best is yet to come. So that's going to be really good progress, in my opinion. I love hearing that because I'm so removed from this world of medical research. And what do I hear about? I I see a whole bunch of ads for prescription drugs, which I feel inundated by. Not to mention in the media, all the conspiracy theories about big pharma as a layperson. It just all, at least for me, it gets me very worried about who's looking out for, are my interests protected? So this is social media that's, accelerated this whole i mean something like even vaccines right for covid i mean i mean they took everything yeah Fauci and turned him into a you know villain which was surprising because he was he's actually one of the most respected infectious disease specialists he's actually people don't know that he came from he's actually a republican who was nominated by ronald reagan to be the head of nh i mean it's just surprising <laughs> and he's written most of the basic textbooks for which almost every doctor uses right so mm-hmm. so then in the last couple of years somehow he turned into this yeah. Dark figure was, you know, launching all these vaccines that are tracking. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of strange conspiracy theories and it's yeah, very hard yeah. to rebut some of them because it gets into the social media and people believe it. So. True, true. Arun and I watched a show called Dope Sick. Yep. It's excellent. Uh, I've seen Purdue. it. Yeah. So that is that is horrific, picture. right? So uh, yeah. I that was very sad. I mean, the whole thing. And, uh, yeah. It is a crisis for the country, I think, for yeah. sure. So I know People are taking it very seriously. There's close to 100,000 deaths from fentanyl and all these opioids. Yeah, it's a pretty sad situation. But Yeah, I mean, awareness is always um, almost a required yeah. first step to things improving. But yeah, no, I don't mean to continue to quiz you on this, but I, I do, before I move on, it is very heartening to hear what you witnessed in cancer research and how the progress is being made in AI is helping. And so right. that's, without really understanding it well, it does make me very hopeful and excited. Yeah, and I, I hear, you know, the things that is the industry perfect, absolutely not. I think there are areas where improvement is needed. I think some of the changes hopefully will happen for the, you know, positive. And so. Yeah, so let's, let's switch gears again. Let's talk about something lighter, I guess. So through your career, your professional life, what would you attribute your success to? That's more about delving deep. And as you tell me, link it to what you may recognize as your Indian roots or Indian value and how that played into it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always hard to distinguish. Is it Indian roots or is it things you learned from your own parents, right? I mean, some of it is probably hardwired since you were young and your parents told you things. I mean, my parents did have an influence. I think my mother was always very strict with us in terms of getting good grades, you know, make sure. And I'm sure a lot of Indian moms are like that, right? It's, studies were number one. Yeah. Uh, she hated anything that involved showing off or, you know, getting too much into clothes or things like that. And she was incredibly frugal too. So, you know, it was always like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, your only goal is to get good grades and study hard, right? So that was it's a big deal. Working hard was a big deal. My dad was also very, he always said that whatever job you do, you got to be passionate and 110% committed, right? Just don't do it. It's a way to make money. You know, so that was always kind of a very important thing I learned from him. So so he was always a mining engineer all his life and obviously he did very well as he advanced his career. So that was kind of a good role model. And I think Indians, you know, maybe if there is such a thing in Indian culture, it is the focus on education, trying to, you know, kind of be a good professional, good citizen, working hard. 
doing the right thing and being diligent. I think for the most part, Indians always are pretty diligent. People work hard, right? I think maybe the Indian background does make you more adaptable and resilient because things always, especially in India, always go wrong, right? Yeah. It's never an easy road to go from point A to point B. So I think those are some of the unique aspects of Indian culture that help you how to, you know, navigate professional life, right? So I think maybe that explains Indians in, let's call it the, you know, a lot of them have made it right to the top in large companies and kind of explains it. So that could be one of the reasons too. But for me, I think my family background was useful. And then, you know, and I did, you know, I've come from a middle-class family, which made sure that I went to the best schools. You know, Bihar actually was a small town, but we had a very good run by American Jesuits, interestingly, who were inculcating us in science and stuff like that, which, you know, it's amazing. Even in fifth and sixth grade, we were doing these scientific experiments and stuff in a okay. small town, right? So so I was fortunate, I think, right from the start. And in Bangalore, I was at a pretty good high school as well, which was serious about study. So I think all those foundational experiences really helped me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. It this is a common theme uh, as we grow up in India. And that's what I want to bring out when I ask right. people these questions. And there is so much overlap already in the answers that I hear when asked. Yeah. Questions. And, you know, I think the other thing, I was actually watching an interesting show about, uh, it's actually one of the recommendations for you. Is the, it's mm. called The Blue Zones. It's in Netflix. Okay. Uh, and they talked about this small island in Japan. And one of the things that, so it has the highest rate of centenarians, right? Unbelievably high number of people live to be on 100. And there's a Japanese concept. It's called Ikigai. Uh, it's a Japanese word, but it basically says to have a fulfilling life, you need to have four things that drive it. I mean, it's certainly a good choice in careers, right? It's, you have to be passionate about the job. You have to be good at it. It has to be something that's good for your society or whatever, right? And mm -hmm. the fourth one, obviously, is helps you make money because you do have to pay the bills. So I thought that was a very nice kind of simple simplification of, you know, what what it needs to be for a successful career. If you can check all the four boxes. Yeah, if it checks all yeah. the four boxes, it's almost like each of those four things balances itself out. Exactly. Helping you're passionate society. about it. You're It's good for society, right? Unlike the dope sick story yeah. where you know, it may make you money, but it's not good for society. That's not a good box, right? So yeah, so I thought that was a good way of looking at life and career choices to look at some of those things balanced. So with all of these thoughts and lessons and values, when it came time to parent your two daughters, how did you balance it out in your head? How, even without really defining or separating Indian heritage from family values or things that you just imbibed along the way as you grew up during your parenting your daughters, how important was it for you that of course, every parent wants to teach their kids, but mm -hmm. did you identify aspects of Indian heritage as something that they should inculcate as a part of their identity? Yes. I don't know if they explicitly did that, right? So they did grow up watching Shah Khan movies, like, you know, mm -hmm. and when they're young, they did enjoy the, you know, all the Bollywood song and dances and both my daughters, I think, participated in some of those, you know, as kids. You know, in the neighborhood, we had other events, typical Indian events like Diwali or Holi, they did that. We didn't actively inculcate anything that was like, hey, you know, you got to do this because you're Indian, right? It was more, I would say, organic, or if that means right. something. You know, we didn't explicitly take them to schools that taught Hindi or any Indian languages. And it partially reflects, I guess, my wife's feeling and my feeling that, you know, we're, we're basically, we know that they're going to settle up here, grow up here, right. so... 
at least my hope was they'll kind of get the best of both, meaning the Indian culture, which has a lot of good aspects to it. And I do believe there's a lot of good aspects in American culture too. So mm-hmm. to me, that would be the ideal blend of getting the best of Indian plus the American culture. Since they have to grow up here, right? So right. Yeah. Yeah, so, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think they do identify ethnically as Indians. I mean, they do love Indian food. You know, when the occasion warrants it, they'll dress up in Indian clothes. I think okay. my yeah. younger daughter makes sure that all her American friends, if they have not tried an Indian restaurant, she would be the first one to lead them to try different types of Indian restaurants. So she got them hooked on chicken tikka masala and some stretch goals, like taking them to a place to have dosas and, you know, trying to show them. So I think those kind of things do happen, yeah. but uh, uh, but they don't speak they don't speak Hindi or Tamil or anything else. They're more, yeah. that's yeah. the Indian-American, right? Yeah, no, it makes sense. I kind of had similar inclinations as Arun and I were raising our own kids. We wanted them to imbibe the culture around them, first and foremost. And of course, what's ingrained in us is going to come through. Before I let you go, is there a cool, lesser-known fact about Indian culture or history that you want to share with people? Well, I mean, something like cricket, right, as a good example. I think it kind of brings the whole discussion full circle about how India is, right? To me, India, I, actually, to me, India in many ways is like America. That's why I don't distinguish it, right? I think India is remarkably resilient in terms mm-hmm. of absorbing different cultures, making its own, and then almost like tweaking it to an Indian format. So I was just, because India is in the middle of the cricket, you know, ICC tournament. Yeah. Cricket is a perfect example, right? Brought by the British, who most people would say did probably not too many good things in India, apart from bringing cricket. Indians took a very old, stodgy, conservative game, made it into a new format, completely Indianized it, right? The T20 games, if you've never been to one in India, I would would highly recommend it. It's like a blast. It's like going to a carnival with a cricket game going on in the middle. You know, they have Hindi Bollywood music blasting. They have cheerleaders and then there's cricket. At least the one I saw in Bangalore a few years ago, Mm. It was like they took the British game, brought in American aspects of it, like cheerleaders, and then they yeah. had uh, of all the things, Kannada music playing in the background. So, yeah, so only in India would it be possible, right? So, yeah, uh, awesome. so when I think of India, things that happen in India, I think that's a perfect example where you take yeah. different things, mash it up, and turn it into something even better. So it's an amazing thing. Yeah. That is true. That is true. Well, this has been fun. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks, thanks, Billy. Wow, we packed a lot into this episode, from seeing the powerful impact of having role models within one's family, to getting exposed to influences that can serendipitously map out your future path, from education and career choices, to finding, as in Joe's case, the love of your life. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did listening to not only Joe's passion towards his field of work, but also the optimism he generated for all of us about the future of medicine. And if you've been listening regularly and paying attention, you may have guessed correctly that I interviewed Joe's wife, Rena in one of the early episodes of the podcast. And surely there is a harmony in their approach to parenting, which is always a great environment for children to grow up in. I can't wait to not only bring you the next episode, but also to myself here, what my next interviewee has to say about all these topics and balance that with my own thoughts and experiences. Hope these discussions are doing something similar for you, my listeners. And I hope to have you back next Monday.